Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. A week ago, I stood here and said I was putting my, my phone on this shelf and not taking it off all week. I'm going to see how a watch worked. By Wednesday, you need to be aware I picked the phone up. Um, I, was, I was under a cascade of missed phone calls and missed texts, and, and uh, I realized that the watch, remember I said I'd report back on how it worked? The watch is not at the point yet where it can substitute for a phone. I was locked out of a lot of my accounts because of two-factor verification, couldn't go on to the, couldn't pay bills, couldn't do things like that. Um, And so I picked the phone back up, put it in my pocket, but I didn't use it, except when I had to, to get onto an account and to turn on and off the lights at home when they were on, all right? it's, it's, It's funny, you use your phone to turn your lights on and off. But what struck me was the realization that we can apply splints to our lives in areas. And giving up a phone is a splint. Um, living like the Amish do is a splint. It's, it's a way to get through a hard spell. But it's not a solution forever, is it? And the real solution to our addiction to the internet is, in the end, saying no. It's the discipline of our lives. Now, again, I'm, I'm quite happy to help splint your life, and I will help you get a, I think the best thing is what uh, Katie Lowell told me, see Katie, I didn't say Kepler, <laughs> what Katie Lowell suggested to me, which is the light phone, which is just a little phone that only works with texting and calls, and uh, because even the, the cheapest phones get you YouTube, and so... I'm, I'm thinking about that. I'm going to look into that right now, and I'll report back. Now, as a church, we have benefited over decades from the work of a certain class of person in our midst who generally is not recognized for their work, although there's often gratitude expressed by individuals, and that is the wives of our pastors. And I'm speaking not of my wife, although she'd be in that number, but I'm speaking of those who serve often in more anonymity and without recognition. And I've thought to myself, as we see the young women of our church embrace the work of a pastor's wife, they need to be recognized. In two weeks, in three weeks, this dear lady, Mackenzie Arndt, took on herself the Monday, Thursday service. Am I right, Mackenzie? The food. Yes, the food. But is that the hardest part of Monday, Thursday? Yes, and we praise God for him. We're going to thank her after that, right? Won't everyone here make a point who's here for that, for that dinner to thank Mackenzie for it? This morning, I want to thank a young woman who took her first foray into serving the church as the wife of a man who's going to be a pastor by, by thanking Lexi Ruiz. Where are you, Lexi? Lexi, will you stand up? You, at the last minute, cooked for 80-so guys, didn't you? And you had some women who helped you. Who were they? Okay, none of us heard that, but that was good. One of the things you got to learn as a pastor's wife is the big, bold voice, okay? But we're grateful to you. Um, Young ladies who helped her, no, stay up. No. Um, the young ladies who helped, would you stand as well? And then let's thank them for their work and service to all of us yesterday, okay? Thank you, guys. Now you can sit down. We appreciate these women and their glory and their service. So praise God for them. Now we're going to turn to the Word of God, and I'd like to ask you to stand with me as we read Matthew 13, verses 24 through 30, and then skipping ahead to 36 through 43, because there's, a, there's a, an intervening two parables in the midst of this, between Jesus telling the parable and his explaining the parable. And those two were dealt with, with 
wonderful effect two, three weeks ago by Chris Light. And so we're going to read the parable and its explanation. This is the word of God. Jesus presented another parable to them saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. The slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. The slaves said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No. For while you are gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up. But gather the wheat into my barn. And then skipping to 36. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him and said, explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. And he said, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. And the field is the world. And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom, and the tares are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels. They will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness, and will throw them into the furnace of fire in that place There will be gnashing, weeping, and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. We ask this morning, Father, that as we look at it together and as I dwell on it, that it may be edifying and that it may come not as mere words, Father, that glance into and off of us, Father, but as, as your power by the Holy Spirit, Father, to change our lives with full conviction, believing it, Father, and living it, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. This is an, another of the many parables Jesus told that deal with fruitfulness. In one way or another, fruitfulness is the theme of Christ over and over and over, as it is the theme of Scripture from the first to the last chapter, fruitfulness. Perhaps no theme in Scripture is more obvious and more neglected than fruitfulness. The Bible speaks about sex over and over, often in ways that we find kind of embarrassing and we turn away from it. We don't like to mention what the Bible says about sex. And we think in some ways often that we're a little more holy than Scripture, that we're cleaner people than Scripture. But we're not. We're never cleaner than God and His Word. God speaks about sex because of His desire for fruit. Because He's concerned about the nature of our fruit. Because sex is essential to fruitfulness. God has surrounded, I I don't think we can repeat this often enough, God has surrounded fruitfulness with pleasure. The flowers are beautiful that bear fruit. The fruit tastes good. The act of sex which brings children is, is pleasure in every possible way. And the greatest ones are not just the sensational ones, the sensate ones, but the the mind and the emotions. God loves fruitfulness, and so he speaks to us about fruitfulness and our lack of fruitfulness throughout the Bible. This is one of Jesus' many parables where he's speaking to us about fruitfulness, talking to us about the lives we lead. I want to identify a few things, speak of a few things in this parable before going on to Jesus' explanation of it and and the implications for your life and mine. Jesus speaks about a, a, the kingdom of heaven here. The kingdom of heaven is holographic. That means it's present in the biggest ways and in the smallest individual. 
Remember, a hologram is a, a thing that has the physical properties of, that are unusual and that you can cut a hologram in half and have the same picture, but in just smaller detail. And that was one of the great principles of the hologram. And we, are, we want to be holographic as a church. We want what we do all together to be done by the individuals. We want the worship of the homes to reflect the whole. We want there to be no lack of correspondence there. And Jesus makes it clear that the kingdom of heaven is like this. Now, if the kingdom of heaven is like this, then also this church is like this and our homes are like this and we have to recognize that it goes from the biggest set of everything down to the smallest part of that set. So he's speaking about the kingdom of heaven, but it's also about the individual churches. And more often than not, this parable is read in light of local churches, which is not a wrong way to lead it, but we need to recognize from the outset that Jesus is speaking about his entire kingdom. And that kingdom stretches from, from not only from shore to shore, you know, from around the world, but it, it stretches from eons past to his return. So it's across time as well. And so there is a kingdom of heaven and a man who represents it sows good seed in his field. So the kingdom of heaven can be compared to this man who sows good seed, but while his men are sleeping, so the man's men are sleeping, obviously he's an owner and he has servants who work and while his men are sleeping, the enemy comes and sows tares among the wheat and then goes away. Now tares are an unusual plant. No, they're not unusual, but they are an interesting plant because tares are what we know today as darnel. It's, it's a weed that, from what I've read about it, is virtually indistinguishable from wheat until the time comes for its harvest. And then when it has, when it has put out its kernel, that kernel is clearly dis, it's distinct from a wheat kernel. But until the time of the full seed coming out, it's really, it looks, it's almost impossible to tell apart from wheat. It's not a, a hardy plant. They say it almost can't live without human propagation of it. And humans don't propagate it usually on purpose. It just takes its spot in their fields. Darnell or tares can be poisonous. It's, it's not a pleasant to eat weed. The, the kernel does no good. But there is a certain mold that can get into it and does frequently get into it that turns it all black. And at that point, it's actually poisonous. And so darnell or tares are, are relatively poisonous. You can't actually die from eating darnell that has the mold in it. And so Jesus says, this is what happens. His enemy comes and he sows this, this thing that is indistinguishable from the wheat until the fruit appears in the midst of the wheat. And then the enemy goes away. So looks like a normal field, acts like a normal field, germinates like normal seed, like you'd want with wheat, grows and looks like it should be wheat. And then at the time for fruit, <laughs> bang, you know, recognition. Well, no, this is not just a field of wheat. There are tares here. And so Jesus goes on and says, so the slaves of the landowner came and said to him, sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Then how does it have tares? And evidently, they don't understand it. Now, later in the, in, in the explanation, Jesus says that the servants are angels. And the angels don't grasp how this has happened. If angels don't get it, and they've seen heavenly warfare, if they have to ask, so do you. You don't get it. You're surprised by this. But the master, the owner of the kingdom, the... Uh, the owner of the field, which represents the kingdom. He's not surprised, is he? He says, oh, well, there's an enemy. There's an enemy who's done this. There's an enemy. And God is aware that the, the enemy is at work. You and I lose sight of the enemy, and it's to our detriment that we do, but God is never unaware that Satan is roving to and fro through the earth, seeking whom he may devour like a, a crouching lion. God is always aware and always dealing with Satan. And you and I... We're, we're encouraged by this, this, this parable Jesus told to remember that there is an enemy. There is a real enemy. Now we go on and we see in Jesus' explanation, uh, following the two subsequent short little parables, the one about the leaven, 
And the other one about the mustard seed and the growth of both being the point of those parables. He leaves the crowds, goes into the house, disciples come and say, explain it. And so he says, well, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. So he's the sower. And, and what, what is the glory of the Christian life is that Christ is the sower. And his blood and his word are what is sown. But the privilege of sowing is given to you. You have been granted the incredible privilege of carrying the good news about Jesus to the world. It wasn't given to angels to do this. It was given to you. This great privilege of going to people with the power of God. In a sense, what I'm doing here today. That's why I pray that God will, I'm using the words of Paul to the Thessalonians, that he will not just have my words be words, but there will be power by the Spirit and conviction. This is a prayer for all of us as we go and carry the gospel. May God give me effect. May God give me boldness. May God use me. So Jesus says, I'm the sower, but he has deputized each of you who know him and given you this incredible privilege to do what Jesus did. So when Mario prays and asks forgiveness for us because we are not thinking about witnessing, it really is a very sobering thing to think that we have been given this incredible treasure. Is there any treasure greater than the the blood and the word of God? Is there anything that will be charged more with responsibility and how we used it than this these talents so Jesus says I'm the sower and we're only doing what Jesus has done when we speak to others about him and everyone is called to do it and he says the one who sows is the son of man the field is the world the good seed are the sons of the kingdom the tares are the sons of the evil one the enemy who sowed it the the tares is the devil the harvest is the end of the age the reapers are angels and what we see here is This is a big deal. This is not just you. This is not just me. This is not just our church. This is not just this age or the church across the world in this age. This is all time, all people. This great, this picture here is of a titanic battle that spans the eons which every life is involved in, caught up in, and no one can escape. This is what we're engaged in. The battle of the ages, the conflict of all time, and we are called to take our part in it. It's a big, big thing. And yet, the the passage does not, the parable does not lose the individual for the whole. It doesn't lose sight of the the trees for the forest. There is also the, the trees and there's the individual And we take our part individually in this, even though it's this huge, eon-spanning, world-engulfing warfare. And so the Son of Man will send forth his angels, he says, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness. And we're going to come back to this. But the promise is that at the end, that, that there will be a division. And there will be some who go to a place of eternal weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is common terminology in the Bible for hell. Where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Where there is no happiness. Where there is misery forever and ever. Sometimes it's called a place where the fire does not go out. Sometimes a place where the worm does not die. The worm that eats the body once we're dead it's eternal death because the worm never dies the body's always dying decaying here he says it's a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth but on the other hand the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father he who has ears let him hear now the question is do we have ears has God given us ears do we hear this story I want to say Two basic things that are lessons from what Jesus has said in this that that you and I need to take to heart. Jesus told this parable so that we'll learn from it. And he says, hey, you got ears to hear. 
Pay attention. Listen to this. Satan, the devil, the one who sowed the tares, has a plan. And his plan is to hurt the kingdom of God. And he hurts the kingdom of God by hurting individuals within the kingdom. And that plan involves the sowing of the tares. There is an enemy. He has a plan. And he has a goal. And he knows what he's trying to do. Do you? All right? This is the question we've got to ask. Do you understand what Jesus is saying here that Satan's trying to do and how it involves you and what you need to be aware of? Do you have ears to hear this parable? The first thing that we're told that's obvious here is is that the reality is Though the the enemy has done this, and though it looks really bad, and though the tares are growing right in the midst of the wheat, the farmer, the one who owns the land, isn't worried. He's just not worried. He says, okay, we'll handle it, right? At the end, we're going to do a separation, but don't worry about it right now. We're going to let them grow. We're going to let them be there together. We're going to not separate until the end of time. Now, This is the truth of the eons, all right? And so if you look at it across the eons, there is a final separation where the sheep are separated from the goats, where those who are on Christ's left right hand are separated from those who are on his left hand. There is a great separation. But just as it goes on in that great and eternal way, it also takes place as our lives begin to give evidence of their fruitfulness. And so... There is a way in which lives reveal what they are by their fruit in this life and there is the ability to make a judgment about them before the end of time because Jesus says by their fruit you will know them. He doesn't just say that by their fruit God knows them. He says by their fruit you shall know who belongs to him and who does not. But the point that he is making here is that Satan has done this in order to cause you to go in a tizzy and to want to do something about the problems that are out there in the church. What God is saying here, through Jesus in this parable, is it's not your worry what's going on with the church. You are not to be worried about the church. God will take care of his bride. God has a plan. It will be revealed What you need to worry about is your life. Now, this is a lesson that can't be driven home strongly enough. Many people will say to me, Christ the word is blessed, David. It has such good leaders, or this or that. And I always respond, and some of you have said this to me, yes, God has given many good people to Christ the word, including many who are good leaders. But that is not the reason Christ the Word is a church where God is present. That's just a reflection of a bigger truth, which is that where people love God, God gives leaders. Where people are serving God, God gives them leaders in accord with their hearts. And so the character of this church is not the character of the elder board, and it's not the character of me, It's not the character of those who were here initially who founded it. The character of this church is all of us, each of us, you and you and you and you. And the problem is, very often we start to think that the nature of a church and the destiny of a church is determined by a few. And so there was a a famous pastor in England during World War II named Martin Lloyd-Jones. And during the war, people left London and a lot, of the, a lot of people from allied countries came into London and the church seemed to go down in attendance. It, did, it had a balcony much like ours, but a bigger one. And, and they started realizing that on Sunday mornings and Sunday evenings, the balconies were empty. And it caused the whole church to get in an uproar. 
And they held a meeting. What are we going to do to fill our balconies? Our balconies are, are not full. We've got to fill the balconies. And they held an all-church meeting. And this really happened. And during the meeting, people had a bunch of ideas. Well, we could do music this way. We should do this way. And they were going to revise everything. They, everything that they could bring up that might attract new people was brought up. And finally, the pastor of the church, Martin Lloyd-Jones, stood up and said, would it interest you if I could tell you that there is a way I am absolutely certain next Sunday every seat in this house would be full? And people went, oh yeah, we'd like to hear that. He said, well, okay. They always put in the newspaper, the London Times, so forth, they put their, their, their little notice of what they were going to do the next Sunday. It was a big, prominent church. They put a little notice. He says, next week, we're going to put in our notice that the right Reverend Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones is going to preach in his underwear. <laughs> and people went, You understand, our goal is not to fill every seat. Our goal is to have every life be fruitful for God. And that will do the work. We don't need to be worried about the whole. What we need to be worried about is you and me. Now, this has a number of implications for our lives. He, Jesus begins this parable the way he does so many others in this chapter. He says, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to. And this is a story about what it's like to live in his kingdom. Life as you will find it and as I will live it, our lives, the life we lead as his followers. In other words, this is what it's like to be in the church, what it's like to be a follower of Jesus. It's like this, a man who went and planted good seed, but when the planting's done, an enemy comes and sows tares, and then they grow up together. And what is Jesus saying? First, his kingdom has enemies, and they have a plan. There are enemies. You have enemies. I do. And what does the enemy want? Well, he wants you playing defense. You understand that? He wants you running around in a tizzy saying, but, 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 look, 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 trouble, trouble. The enemy wants you scared. The enemy wants you thinking that the cause has been hurt or even lost. The enemy is determined to make you think that this great kingdom of God is just an adulterated little thing and maybe with a questionable future, maybe with no future. One of the reasons Jesus tells this parable is that he does not want his followers worrying too much and being too preoccupied with the existence of enemies. They are there. They are here. They are the unfruitful ones. They are the seed of Satan. They need to be taken into account, but they should not deter you from living boldly for God. That's the point he's making, clearly the point he's making in the first part of our passage. Jesus doesn't explain the part about the owner of the field telling his servants who is asked if they should go out and gather the tears not to do so. He says no. He doesn't explain it. He's, that part is left unexplained in his explanation. You, you grasp that? He goes on and identifies a lot of things in the explanation that he gives later to his disciples. He doesn't explain this part. He says no. It's obvious. While you're gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat. So allow both to gather together until the harvest. And at the harvest, I'll say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. In other words, don't spend your life trying to make the church perfectly holy. The church will always have tares in her midst. Don't spend your time and energy always trying to root out bad seed. Eventually, it's going to become clear, but for now, you let it go. Just be the good seed. Just grow. Just produce fruit. Don't worry about the bad seed around you. This is fundamentally important. 
Any army that spends more time worrying about the traitors in its own ranks is an army that is going to be defeated in the war with its real enemies. In the early 1900s, there was a civil war brewing in Russia between the whites and the reds, between the communists and the conservatives, between the radicals and the realists. And as they fought in World War I as a nation, they were fighting at home. And there was really a battle brewing between these parties at home. What do you think happened to their fight in the actual war they were engaged in as a nation? It went to pieces. They stopped fighting the war and they were caught up in what we call an internecine conflict. An internal battle between themselves. Jesus is saying here, no. Any army which worries more about traitors in its own ranks than about the foe is doomed. It's fighting an inward battle. Now, does this mean there are no counterfeits in our ranks and none worth opposing? Does this mean that the church is not to be pure? No, it doesn't. It means wait until the fruit is obvious. Wait until you know. Don't surmise before the fruit is obvious. Don't read into the situation what doesn't need to be read into it. There are churches which have made such a point of of maintaining internal purity that they do no external good. They are constantly purifying themselves, constantly whittling the flock down to the truly reformed, to the true believers, to the true followers that they never actually bear fruit. One such church is what is known as the Plymouth Brethren. It was a group that came into promise late 1800s and for 40, 50, 60 years before it died in deserved oblivion. There's still remnants of it around. But it, it said, we are the pure. In fact, we're so pure that we're going to have a service before our service where the ultra-pure are allowed to come and only those people who have been tested and found perfectly pure are allowed to take communion at that service. It was closed, utterly closed. You couldn't visit from another church. You had to be examined by those elders before you could ever take part. And that meant that no one ever took part in it. It was all the old people in the church because they were so committed to being pure. Some of you have grown up in, in what we know as fundamentalist churches. Churches that begin by saying we're going to be zealous for God. But pretty soon that zeal became a zeal for a form of godliness rather than true godliness. And it became a place of battles where certain battles were fought and others were ignored. And very commonly in the fundamentalist churches, the battles were against drinking and smoking and certain obvious external sins. But I'm telling you from knowledge of a number of such churches that very often the things that were ignored were the more important battles like sexual purity. And those churches that made such a point of purity expended so much energy on the little things, dividing and dividing and being harsh against this that they never dealt with the things the Bible really speaks about, even to the point of being filled with, with problems sexually within their own families, rife within those, those churches. So we don't live to judge others. We don't live to excessively examine others. This is the problem that was going on in Corinth when, when Paul wrote and attacked them for saying, I'm a Peter, I'm a Paulus, I'm a Paul, I'm a Christ. Some were followers, advocates of one, one of another. Jesus, even they said, I'm a follower of Jesus. Paul says, look, stop judging in accord with your attempts to read people's hearts. And then he says in Corinthians, Judge in accord with what is written. Okay, the Bible doesn't say that any drinking of alcohol is wrong. It doesn't say it. In fact, it commends the drinking of alcohol at a variety of points. But the Bible says that if you live in drunkenness or get drunk, you're sinning. And it warns about drunkenness. We need to understand that what the Bible warns against is the thing that we need to be against. Overzealousness for a fake purity inevitably descends into judgmentalism and fanaticism of the worst sort. 
not fanaticism for Christ, not a zeal for obedience, but judging of others and zeal for our own reputations. Paul was attacking this. Don't judge in accord with what you think. Deal with what's written. Deal with what's written. How many of the judgments we make are based on what we think a person's like rather than what they've actually done that we can define as sinful? I think the truth we're known, probably the majority of our judgments are of the kind that Paul says, don't make them. Zeal for a false righteousness leads to judging of others and a zeal for our own reputations rather than Christ, and it's deadly. There have been times in our church where I have been urged to adopt and make known a very strict dress code. Maybe some of you are some of those who asked me to. But whenever I start to think, well, maybe we should say certain things, I remember the time, the thing that occurred in my brother's church down in Bloomington some years ago when a woman in the church, a college student, brought her friend who had never before attended church, friend from the university, and a dear older lady in the church went up to that young woman who was in church for the first time and said, young lady, we don't dress like that here. And that young lady never came back. There are certain things that we lay aside. Even things that I might say to you, you know, I don't like that. And I think biblically, there's a reason to question what you're doing. We lay it aside. We wait for the major fruit. We understand that God is working in all of us. And too often, what we're going to judge each other on aren't things that God has made clear, but things that you think are clear and I think are clear. We are not a church and we are not called to be people who examine the lives of others for every trace of sin. We don't sit around here like mama orangutans at the zoo, carefully going through every hair on our baby's head, right? Looking for every little spot of vermin and then eating it. We don't do that. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. If there is obvious bad fruit of a scandalous or harmful nature, we do oppose. The Bible calls us to. We challenge. We wait until it's clear, until the fruit is there, and then we challenge. Can you think of how many sins Jesus was aware of in his disciples? He knew every sin. He knew every thought of their heart. And yet the number of things that he actually attacked with them is rather surprisingly minuscule. We don't have a whole lot of examples of Jesus coming after. He did go after Peter when Peter said, no, you shouldn't die. And he did say to Peter, get you away from me, Satan. He did go after, in a sense, James and John when they were seeking his right and left hand in his kingdom and said, can you drink the cup that I drink? But in the end, Jesus left so much go, including the incipient, and he knew it all the way through, the incipient rebellion and betrayal of Judas. Look, I, what, I, what I wanted to, to say to you by the word of God this morning, okay? It's not the word of David. It's the word of God. It's, you are not scared if you're a child of God. You are not frightened. You are not the defensive army trying to just protect its turf. The terms that Jesus uses in this is of the entire world. God hasn't said that his kingdom is just this little group of people here. His kingdom is the entire world. He owns the entire world. He hasn't resigned the world. He says, this world is my kingdom. He owns the world. He owns Wall Street. He owns the Capitol. He owns the Moscow and the, the center of powers in Moscow. He owns the Brandenburg Gate. He owns the, the, the hill in Pretoria that, where the parliament is, meets. He owns all these things and every person. It's his. The second thing that we need to be aware of and uh, the second way that Satan is seeking to attack by, by sowing the tares in our midst is to cause us to fail in our second duty, uh, the duty that is implicit here. The first duty is not to pull up 
and not to judge others. The second duty, however, is exactly the opposite. It is to begin to worry about ourselves. It is to examine ourselves. And that's the point Jesus has in telling this parable. Christmas Day, I opened a gift from my kids, which was something I've wanted for a long time. I've probably mentioned it here in a sermon because it's one of those gifts you like. Haven't really been able to use it yet, but it was a pair of colorblind sunglasses or glasses. And it has those funny colored lenses in them that you look through and it accentuates the colors that you can see, sort of blots out the colors that, that are confusing to you. So it renders the world for a colorblind guy like me in sort of stark contrast. It allows you to see the contrast more easily. Now, my kids said they got it for me because they wanted me to see nature's colors more fully. But we haven't had colors enough for me to wear them, and I haven't worn them because I don't want to get used to them until the flowers are out and the grass is green and so forth. But I'm not so certain that they got these glasses for me because they're worried about my seeing flowers. They have been so critical of my pant choice lately and the colors. And to me, if you see me wearing what my kids tell me is a deep orange or a bright red pair of pants, they just nice blah pants to me, all right? Even with the colorblind glasses on, I don't see anything but nice pants. You may not see them that way, and I think my kids don't see them that way, but I see them that way, and they're comfortable, and they stretch. So I'm going to keep wearing them, all right? Someone said to me that part of the effect of COVID is everyone has gone to comfortable pants and they're never going to go back to starch shirts and starch pants, right? Well, all right. What is Jesus doing here? He's giving a bunch of colorblind people glasses so that they look at the world and understand it. He's saying to you, look, don't be stupid. Don't be blind, you know. I'm defining for you what you need to be concerned about. And put on the glasses and see where the real thread is. The real threat is not out there to the church. The real threat is in here to me. This is what we need to be on guard against. So Jesus gives us these glasses. And he says, at the end, he says, there will be certain classes of people who are going to be, who are going to be rejected on the day when everyone is dealt with. On the day that there is a final division between people, certain people are going to be left out. And who does he say will be left out? Well, the Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness. Now, Stumbling block is a term that Jesus uses on a number of occasions. He actually describes himself as a stone of stumbling. Stumbling block in Greek is skandalion. It's the root of our scandal. It means something that you just can't get past. And it means scandal is based on it being a stumbling thing. It's something that we stumble over. So the real meaning is a stumbling thing, not a scandal as we think of it. But that's where we get scandal from. Jesus says... There are going to be in hell all stumbling blocks. No stumbling block is going to be in heaven. He will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks. What does Jesus speak about when he calls someone a stumbling block or he warns about being a stumbling block? Time after time, he's talking about leaders. He's saying, be aware of leaders who lead you to go in a bad direction. Do not follow leaders who want to cause you to stumble. Have you ever thought that there are leaders who have as their entire goal to make you stumble? Have you ever thought that? Do you practice wearing these glasses that Jesus is giving us here as you go through life? When you listen to Beth Moore on the radio or on TV, do you put on your glasses and say, whoa, a woman preaching to men. Huh. Something's amiss. A stumbling block. You don't have to look at her teaching on wokeness. You don't have to look to her teaching on men and women. You don't have to look to her teaching in a thousand different areas. You know that she's doing what the Bible has said is not to be done. 
a stumbling block. Have you ever thought that there are stumbling blocks who are seeking to destroy your soul? That Satan has put them there to bring you down. They're teaching stuff that will take you away from the truth. Okay, I doubt that there are many in here who are listening to Beth Moore day after day. Some may, and to you I say, you'd better pay attention to God. You better put on these glasses because there are stumbling blocks. But let me speak about where we are. We live in a church and in a portion of the church where for the last 30 years we have heard nothing but the message of what is called grace. Grace, 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 grace. It's always said to a person who's feeling guilt. You have guilt and the response is grace. Guilt, grace. The problem is God has given us guilt as a warning, a spiritual equivalent of stubbing your toe so that you know you're in a region of danger. Guilt is a gift, just as pain is a gift. And if we respond to guilt with the immediate application of grace, 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 what we've done is said, no danger, no danger, no danger, and there most certainly is danger. There is danger. And so what we have in our day is the equivalent of the day of Jeremiah when the prophets went around and said, peace, 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 peace. Peace, everyone. Peace. It's good. You're good with God. Peace. Grace, grace, grace. But they said, peace, peace, where there was no peace. And today, when men who are sleeping as pastors with women that are not their wives speak about the grace of God as has happened in our former denomination more times than I care to speak about, and they say, oh, the grace of God when they're caught, we need to understand that these are like the false shepherds of the Old Testament who say peace, peace, peace when there is no peace. These are men who are healing the wounds of my people lightly, as God says of those false prophets. Grace, grace, grace. When we hear this said in our college ministry by a guy who's caught in porn and can't get out, we need to hear not grace, but shame, shame, shame. Every time I hear someone go on and on about grace, what I hear in my brain is actually the word unfruitful, unfruitful. That we claim grace to excuse our lack of fruitfulness for God. But God will not allow his grace to be without power. And if his grace is a substitute for fruitfulness, obedience to God, sharing his word, living a holy life, if his grace is a substitute for that in your life, then you don't know and you haven't tasted the grace of God. Because as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. This is true grace. It has effect. It comes with power. It changes a life. It doesn't leave you where you are. It takes you to heaven. This is grace. So we need to be aware that those who prattle on about grace from, from out of their sin and their refusal to bear fruit, they are an incredible danger to you. But there's a second danger Jesus warns about. And that is those who commit lawlessness. Jesus has spoken of the lawless. 
He speaks of them on a number of occasions. In particular, he says when he separates the sheep from the goats, those who have done things for him from those who have claimed to do things but haven't, that he will say to the goats that he rejects, away from me, workers of lawlessness. Away from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, there are people in the church, and there are, just as there are false teachers who want to teach you and be a stumbling block, there are people around you who are leading lawless lives. They're not following God. Young women, they're the guys who want to have sex with you outside of marriage. They're workers of lawlessness. There may be hope for them, and we are patient with young men who do these things at times. But let me tell you, that is lawlessness. And the Word of God is saying, if this man wants nothing but your body right now, and he's not married to you, you need to run from him. Am I making sense? If this guy is taking you out drinking, your friend is leading you into drink and getting drunk, you need to have nothing to do with him. You need to understand where lawlessness is around you, and you need to run from it. You can't embrace lawlessness and go to heaven. So what Jesus is saying here is, you better be clear about what constitutes the good fruit of the kingdom and what is lawlessness. And if it's lawless, well, the church may not know that this guy's trying to sleep with you, right? And he may stay here, and we may even think well of him, and I may think, you know, I, I like this guy, and I may say that. And you may not tell me, and I may never know, and the church may never come down on this guy, right? And that's in accord with this passage. It's not against this passage. But you in your own mind need to know that this is wicked, and you need to run from it. I hope that in in every home here and in every individual life, there's a certain sense of the people that you're willing to hang with in our body and the people that you kind of avoid. And you avoid them because they're lawless. They may come to be lawful. They may grow into, and this is part of the truth, you may find that they become great Christians. We've seen that. People that we gave up on, and then they start flourishing and bearing fruit. But in your own life, it's imperative that you not hang with the lawless because they'll drag you down and you will become unfruitful. This is the warning. Jesus is speaking to you here. He says, do you have ears? Let them hear. Do you have ears? Do you have eyes? Can you see the lawless? Do you see them? Are you running from them? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the teaching of Jesus, which is, as he is, perfect and powerful. We pray that we will not despair about the, about the condition of your church, but understand its victory. I pray that we will be on guard, Father, very much on guard, with eyes that are open and ears that hear in our own lives, in our own walk. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.